Yes, we are Quacks and Quaff, and my name is Kunal Gohill, Special Specialist Clinical Pharmacist in Emergency Medicine at NUH. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Jamie Thomas, Teaching Fellow in Emergency Medicine at Dream NUH. Hello. Dr. Kim Williams, who is a ED doctor of some varying specialty training that I don't fully understand. GP. GP, that's what General practitioners go, they're not you. Never seen one in my life. <laughs> and we've got my darling wife, Bella Shah, specialist pharmacist, maternity, gynecology, fertility. What was the other title you got? <laughs> That's enough. That's Keep enough. me occupied. At NUH. <laughs> so, as usual, we'll be discussing medicine's history, drug history, and reviewing a new lovely bottle of wine, which I've got here in front of me. Today is my choice. So I have cracked open, well, I haven't cracked open yet, I'm about to crack open, a very nice Pinot Noir that I've heard good things about. So this is a Pinot Noir that's not a French one, so we've moved over to the South American territory of Chile. Mm. Chile. Otherwise known as the country of Chile. The country of Chile. It's that, that, real, that one that's a really long strip all the way down. It's just a country that's an entire coast. Nice. Hello to our listeners in Chile. Chile, yes. The 10,000 of them in Chile, our listeners, we love you, we love you. Um, so yeah, so no, I picked this one because I've heard very good things actually, a couple of friends have recommended it. I haven't actually tried this wine before, but it's a Pinot Noir, so... What's the name? Uh, so this is a 20 barrels Pinot Noir grown in the El Triangulo estate, which is from the Casablanca Valley in Chile. So Casablanca Valley is a very quite a famous wine growing region in um, in Chile, and I was quite interested because Pinot Noirs they're very famous for being the Burgundian wines. So Pinot Pinot Noirs grown in Burgundy, minerally soil, really really famous, very full bodied. Well, not that full bodied. Classic Pinot Noir, so berries, relatively full bodied, not too many tannins. It's a very classic wine. But the Chile, they've grown it in Chile. They've been doing quite well. That region of the Casablanca uh, Valley has got quite a similar climate to Burgundy, so I've been told very good things about these Pinot Noirs grown in that region. So I'm going to crack it open. There we are. That was a good. That was a good, that was a good noise. I did that well. That was, that was good. <laughs> well done. Really? No editing required there. That's it. So this is 2017. I passed the cork round as is customary. Very nice. Ooh. So this is 14%. 14 14. and a half. So I'm just seeing, I'm pouring it now. It's pouring, again, a very nice, definitely lighter than what we've had. Very purple, isn't it? It's definitely got a bit of lightness to it. Lovely light foam. It's looking really nice, this. The pour is good, if I don't pour it all over the bar, but (laughs) there we are. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Oh, it's very pale compared to what we had before. Cheers. Yeah. If I hold it up, I can see Bella through it. <laughs> As opposed to the last one. As opposed to the last one, yeah, where Bella was eclipsed by the wine. It's definitely a bit lighter than the last one. You can see through that. So if we give it a nice zhuzh, aerate it. Mm. Very fruity right yeah, under the nose. It's, it's all cherries. It's classic Pinot Noir cherries. It's that lovely sort of Bakewell smell that you yeah. get if you stick your nose over right, a cherry Bakewell. Baked, 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 well. baked goods, you're right. Very lovely, sugary. And if you 
lie around the side. I mean, look at, I mean, the very nice legs. Quick, skinny legs. Yeah, this, so they've got some legs, but it's nowhere near the level of the legs that we had on the the previous wine. It's not as boozy. You can... It's really rushing down there, as you can see it. This is very good for a podcast when I'm saying you can see it, but yes, the legs are running <laughs> down the side. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's nice, that. So it's all cherries and baked goods. Really light. A bit of minerals at the end. I do like that. It's a very it's light a spice wine. to it, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah, a slight, yeah. like, you know. And less tannin than the previous. You can mm. clearly see through it. So I'm just doing the old test, which is can you see through the right? So I've got my notes for the podcast. I'm looking through my wine and I can clearly read my notes. So that shows the lightness of it. So that would make it quite a classic Pinot Noir. It's not very tanniny, this. Mm-hmm. This has not got a lot of dryness to it. It's very juicy. So unlike our previous wine, this one is a single grape wine. So yes. the previous one was a mix of so many varieties, I can't even remember how mm. many there are, whereas this very, is that pure one Pinot Noir. It was very complicated, mm. the previous wine. This is a much more simple wine. It's not got the... Well, it's not got the, it's not got the complexity of that previous wine, the tannins of it, that mm. was the body. This is a bit... Quite earthy. Like, very clean. It's definitely got some earthy notes. Baked goods. I definitely taste baked goods on it. Do you know that feeling like when you stick your head, your nose over a bakewell? Yeah, like yeah, a bakewell yeah, yeah. tart, and you get that almondy mm. cherry. There's just that hint of it if you stick your nose over it, and very nice. Definitely. What do you think, Bella? Enjoying it so far. Yeah, a big contrast to the previous. Yeah, it's definitely lighter. Mm, very different. It's, uh, yeah, very interesting wine. Mm. It's nice for us to branch out to the new world as well. Yeah, we're new We've world. We've gone out of Europe. I know. Well, that's it, yeah, I think. And you're right, actually, it's a very good contrast. So our previous podcast was a, what you call an old world wine. So a mm. lot more tanniny, a lot more skin on those grapes, mm. more tannins, more complex. This is a very new world wine. So Chile, which isn't necessarily a traditional grower of wine, but taking grapes over and making very good wine over there. It's mm. a very new world. I think I'm right in thinking Pinot Noir isn't the easiest variety to grow. Yeah, it needs well. It's quite a fussy wine, a grape, quite a fussy one. So I think it needs a it needs a much colder climate than other grapes. If you grow, obviously, not the warmest country. Not the warmest, but it's that that um, Casablanca Valley being the coldest part of Chile Mm. with the mineral minerally soil. But it doesn't taste. I mean, this doesn't taste anything like a Burgundy. So it is completely Mm -hmm. different to a Burgundy, but it is still really nice. Not got the it's not got the strength of a burgundy and it's not got the tannins of a burgundy but it's still interestingly really it is still 14 and a half percent but you don't taste the 14 but you don't and a taste half, it mm-hmm. yeah as uh, as you would before and that's the amount of tannin that's in it is it 14 and a half but yeah. it doesn't it doesn't look as if it had the legs no. of that it's much thinner than the it's a thinner wine isn't it mm-hmm. there that's, we go that's it Let's see how it goes Excellent. down so we'll keep it going down so dr thomas what have you got to tell us about the world of the history of medicine so actually it's quite useful that we are drinking from the new world because i'm going to if i say the expression the new world mm-hmm. to go to the new world, new new world. world. i wasn't thinking that <laughs> don't you dare close your eyes <laughs> wow. uh, no i wasn't thinking that uh if i was to say historically going to the new world would i would you, think you usa Hmm? I would think USA. The Americas, absolutely. And would you mm-hmm. think of a particular group of people going over to the Americas? Does anything come to your mind? Who went over to the Americas first? Chris Columbus, love that guy. Bit after that. 
It's a big holiday, Kim, in the country of your birth. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, there we go. Thanksgiving. Well done, Kim. Wow. I was throwing my voice. That was a, a skillful, you know. So if we're thinking about the very first people who went over there. Okay, so we're thinking about that period of history. The very first uh, people who went over from Europe over to, uh, over to America, or what would become America to the new world. So... I want to talk to us, uh, talk to you guys about somebody called Onesimus. 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 No surname. That's it. His name was Onesimus. Onesimus. <laughs> so I'm guessing there's no recognition. I've no, not heard about the guy that, called Onesimus. That guy. So if you were of a biblical persuasion, you might tell me that there was a saint Onesimus, okay. who was a Roman slave. Uh, but we're not talking about that particular person. Onesimus is uh, Latin, I believe, for uh, useful. Hence, the slave was called useful, which is good. Mm. Uh, but this is about a chap who was named after that particular slave because he himself was a slave. So in the previous podcast, I talked about how British people are not always the nicest, and we're going to continue <laughs> that theme. Um, and uh, the, the white guy in the room is saying this, that I think there's a trend in history that um, history is pretty much written by rich white men Don't writing mean. about other rich white men. It's actually why I got involved in this podcast, just to you know, get my point across. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I would like to talk about somebody who kind of revolutionised medicine to an extent. And the only way, the only stuff we know about him is written by the guy who owned him, who was a rich white man. So that not sucks. biased at all? Not biased at all. Mm. I think it's fair to say that smallpox kicks almost any other disease into touch. Mm. Um, it's been seen all the way back in mummies. We've seen evidence of pox marks. Mm. Throughout human history, it's affected people of all social classes. In this country, Mary II, uh, Mary Stuart, was killed by smallpox. Um, Elizabeth I was nearly killed by it when she mm -hmm. was young. And if she died, we oh. would have had Mary Queen of Scots being our queen. So the, the, our history would have been completely different. Um, uh, Louis XV of France was killed by smallpox. Peter II of Russia was killed by smallpox. This is a horrific disease all throughout human history. Um, and, and as white men travelled around the world, uh, sorry again, uh, we brought with us smallpox and we brought it to the new world and we ravaged whole indigenous populations, wiping out uh, whole Native American peoples and all of that stuff. Um, yeah, sorry. Probably need to edit this bit out. It's a bit of a bummer. Yeah. Uh, anyway, you should so, apologise on behalf of your race. Uh, I, I do apologise on behalf of my race. <laughs> Sorry. Um, my poor snake charming people and the pox they would have got. <laughs> so it's actually interesting. Um, smallpox was so feared that it's actually across all cultures there are all traditions to do with it and there are religions to do with it. So if you went to North India, there is a goddess called Shitala there, who is the goddess uh, of smallpox. She's oh. associated with the colour red and she's associated with smallpox. So they pray to her to wow. prevent it? Yeah, absolutely. So if you have smallpox, you pray to this goddess. 
Sounds um, like a bit of a redundant religious view these days. Yes, well, we'll talk a bit about that in a bit. <laughs> uh, and the colour red has long been associated with smallpox, so Elizabeth I, when she was ill, she was uh, in a bed completely red, uh, with the curtains drawn all red. It was long associated this was the colour that, that got you through smallpox. Um, obviously we know now, spread by a virus, they obviously didn't know that back then, but they obviously knew it was contagious uh, and it was a disease to be feared. 30% of people were killed. I'm sure you've all seen those images of people covered in these horrible sores. Um, supposedly you got those pustules on your internal organs as well. Ooh. Horrible way to die. Um, if the disease itself didn't kill you, you got a secondary infection of your pores, of those sores, so you died of that. And um, there was another type of smallpox, which was like a hemorrhagic smallpox, where you literally bled to death, like you do a bit with Ebola, something like that. Horrible disease. Horrible disease. Uh, And so, we are now going to go to the 18th century. We're over in America. And we're going to go to a chap called Cotton Mather. Or Cotton Mather. I don't know how you say his name, but... He is a puritanical uh, priest. He's a minister. And he's a chap who was quite big into the uh, Salem witch trials. Mm. So okay. he'd already made a bit of a name for himself as being a guy to go, you're a witch. And he'd been Paul part of that. So we're on the east coast of America. We're over in Boston, Massachusetts. That's where we are for, at the moment for this. So witches were burnt at the stake? I believe they were, yes. Yeah, that was standard. That was standard yeah. proceedings. Yeah, yeah. Those, those women that, yeah. you know, with were single, were... Had a cat. Had a cat, had... <laughs> political views. Had political yeah. views, had... Again, tried to help rich, other people. white men witch. like you. You're a witch. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Anyway. History. Yeah. History. So as I said, I'm, I'm, you guys are looking at me as if to go, well, duh, but, you know, I'm, I, maybe I'm having a, a moment. Anyway, 1706, as, all, as a lot of white men of that time would have done, he acquires himself a slave. And that is the only way we know about this guy. I uh, don't even know his name, other than the fact that uh, Cotton Mather called him Onesimus for useful, after the the saint in the Bible. Mm. Uh, Somewhere from Africa, we don't know. Uh, And that's the only way we know about this guy. Uh, So 1706, he buys this guy and takes him in as his slave. So somewhere between then and 1721, he gets to talk to this slave and gets to know him a little bit. And he writes that he doesn't quite like this slave because he's a bit uppity. He's got some views of his own and things like that. Goodness. Goodness. But he also... (laughs) He also gets to talking to him, though, uh, about smallpox, because it's obviously a disease that threatened a lot of people. Uh, and I suppose he was probably thinking, well, I don't want my property to die as well. So he's probably talking to his slaves about this is what smallpox is. And Onesimus says something to him that's really shocking. He says to him, you don't need to worry about me. I'm immune. Oh, nice plot twist. Onesimus indeed. Exactly. And Cotton's like, what? What are you on about? What boy? And this is where we start to get to this principle, to a practice called as variolation. So this is essentially what Onesimus tells him is when I was when I was young and I was growing up back home before I got stolen and taken over here, we had a procedure done where a doctor in the in the the village or whoever would take the pustules of somebody who'd had smallpox 
would scratch the arm of young children, rub the pustule into the scratch, you'd get a fever, but then you would be lifelong immune to smallpox. Sounds like the old school inoculation. It is a form of inoculation using a weak form of the virus to confer immunity. And actually, looking back, this was a practice that had been done most a lot in Asia as well. So in China, they would take the pustules, dry them, and blow them up the noses of children in order to expose themselves. To, I mean, they didn't know it was a virus, but they expose themselves to the illness. Across whole parts of Asia, there's this various practices of rubbing the pustule against your skin, scratching and rubbing it in, something like that. And obviously, it happened in Africa as well. And Anesimus had had it, and he said, "We do it. You get a fever. You're a bit ill, but then after that, you never get smallpox." And he'd never heard of anything like this before. Mm. So this was, I mean, back then it was actually a, something to be proud of if you had pockmarks. So you probably couldn't get a job as a maid or a teacher or somebody if you hadn't had the pockmarks on you because it showed that you were immune and that you could be employed and trusted to not die on people. Mm. And this, mm. is, this is the time, you know, you, you, wouldn't, get a, you wouldn't be a, a handmaid or somebody like that if you hadn't had the pox. Anyway, so Cotton goes, that's quite interesting. Uh, in 1721, there's a big outbreak in Boston, Massachusetts. Cotton Mather has a think about this and about what his slave has told him. And so he has a chat to a doctor called Zabdiel Boylston and says, what do you think about this? People are dropping down dead in Boston. Um, what do you think about us trying this? And the doctor goes, okay, we'll try it. And there was a lot of pushback. A lot of doctors said, what the hell are you doing? This is completely stupid. This is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. <laughs> it is crazy, isn't it? If you think about it. Yeah, I, I could imagine when I was that, if, if I was in that situation, 1700s and, I'd have been yeah. like, why would I rub this on myself and think about even trying to contaminate myself? You would have thought mm, that, that You'd would, run away from it. You would. And it's very, it's almost counterintuitive, isn't it? If you think mm. about it. Mm. So it's kind of why people probably are still a bit scared of the flu jab, if you think about it. Mm. So, um, and there was also a religious pushback because people were going, how can you as a man of God push your children into such risk? How could you do that? Um, but it worked. So um, it's not a completely risk-free procedure, as I'm sure you can imagine. You're giving the person the virus. So there was a risk of people developing smallpox, mm. um, but um, it worked. So um, the risk of people dying who'd had this procedure done to them was one in 40. Those who didn't have it, one in seven died. Oh, so this was a huge massive. jump in mortality of people who didn't have it. Um, and this was a big epi um, epidemic going on. 14% um, of the people in Boston died. Uh, but obviously the word got out that this was a thing that was being done. Hmm. Um, and um, Cotton Mather wrote, um, Onesimus is a pretty intelligent fellow. Um, he had undergone an operation which had given him something of the smallpox and would forever preserve him from it. And whoever had the courage to use it was forever free of the fear of contagion. Mm. So that is it. Um, we assume at some point Onesimus gave Cotton some money to buy another slave and Cotton allowed Onesimus to have a degree of freedom. And that is all we know of him, because he was so no longer with a rich white man. Nobody wrote about him, so mm. I can't tell you anything more about his life, such as history, other than that. But what um, an impact on what an impact the new world. Absolutely, invented vaccination. Uh, well, well, absolutely, and I think 
there's the <laughs> my uh, my wanting to jump in and and clarify that this isn't quite how vaccinations work anymore. No, there you know there there isn't the risk of dying of smallpox with a vaccination. Um, no, and it's not as crude as yeah, no. and it's not as crude rubbing as rubbing it wrong. on a scratch. <laughs> so this is it, and um, interestingly, that very same year. Oh, so 1721, across the pond, over in uh, London, Lady Mary Wortley Montague, so we what can tell we're name. dealing in a different social strata here, <laughs> a woman, um, possibly a woman, but uh, obviously <laughs> married to a very influential man. She was married to the ambassador to Turkey. Uh, she herself had had smallpox as a child. Her brother had died due to smallpox, so this is obviously something on her mind. While her husband was over in Turkey, Turkey is obviously the gateway between Europe and Asia, mm. so it's a melting pot like it still is, she heard about this practice of variolation or inoculation because of the, the people who are coming from Asia. So um, while she was there, um, she had her son inoculated in 1715. He was well. So in 1721, she went to the royal court, called the royal doctors around, and had her daughter undergo the same procedure and went, look, it's safe-ish. Mm. Uh, and it sort of started to spread. Mm. Um, not without some downsides. Um, Prince Octavius, uh, the son of King George III, had it done and died of smallpox. So obviously not very good. Uh, that was in 1783. Probably immunosuppressed or something without Maybe. Uh, but by that point, a certain doctor called Edward Jenner had started doing some work. Okay, oh, I, was, I know this. I was Jenner. getting stressed I thinking <laughs> I knew the wrong story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jenner was so like. <laughs> so here we're talking. That's all inoculation. Mm. This is not vaccination. Yeah, yeah. This is where Edward Jenner comes in uh, towards the end of the 1700s, and this is where we're getting into our milkmaids, okay. looking at cowpox and using that. And actually, the first vac vaccination act, which was part of the response to get people vaccinated, outlawed inoculation. So it said, no more will we do inoculation, we will do vaccination. Mm -hmm. And that was in the 1800s, that's when that came in. Mm. But this whole response started, I think it's incredible, you've got these two people who couldn't be more different on the other side of this huge Atlantic Ocean, both coming up with the same sort of story. Mm. I think it's incredible that there was this chap who I can't even tell you his real name. I don't know when he was born, when he died, but this one moment he had with the guy who owned him had such an impact on mm. history. Had such an impact. Massive. Quite a thing. So whoever you are, Anesimus, cheers. Mm. Cheers, Anesimus. Cheers. cheers. Your white master. <laughs> Edit okay, that bit out. Gonna, we're not going to cheers to but it's yeah. a good point, and it probably means well, it's, it's a good story. It's probably and, and and the fact that we're doing this kind of a podcast with four healthcare professionals, we should probably touch on the anti-vax epidemic that's going on right now. That seems to have become more oh, prevalent. Controversial part of the podcast coming well, up. I don't think it's controversial in the slightest, and that's the actual great thing of it, isn't it? Really? Well, I think what what smallpox does show is that vaccines work. Yes. So yes. halfway through last century, the World Health Organization basically said, we've had enough of smallpox, let's eradicate it. And they vaccinated people worldwide. 
contacts of people so, who, so to so to ring around people who'd had smallpox to vaccinate their contacts and in 1980 we eradicated a disease that was killing hundreds of millions of people okay. and now we are safe from smallpox because of vaccinations possibly the greatest success of modern med Absolutely. medicine mm. as you could so, argue vaccines work they are safe vaccinate your kids Please. Please. Vaccinate your kids. What do you have to say, Bella? You're probably the one of us that deals with the most amount of vaccinations. Absolutely. Vaccinate your newborns. It's the thing that if any newborn is born on neonatal units, spend some time with us, even if they are preterm, they still get their vaccinations because immunity is so important, um, even, especially in those early stages of, of life. Um, Mums as well who haven't been up to date with their vaccinations, we will implore them to take them. Yep. Well, they save lives. They That's do. The, yep. They're an they amazing weapon. Save your own life, save your kid's life, and you that very small pocket of the population who can't be vaccinated for you know, very specific for reasons. reasons, immunosuppression um, like we touched on earlier. Egg allergy. Yeah. yeah, particular allergies, if they're immunosuppressed, um, are entirely reliant on the people around them being vaccinated to prevent them herd, contracting herd immunity, the say. disease. Yeah, and that's that's the sad. We we were heading towards eradicating other nasty diseases like measles. Measles as well. Yeah, and that is now popping up all over the place again for the first time in a long time. A long I don't time. know the exact Well, times. at the start of this century, America was measles-free, and now it's back. Yep, we were Same almost, in the UK we were as well. almost measles-free in the UK, as it stood, and now we've had, well, we know we've dealt with cases of, I've dealt with cases of measles over the last three-month period. Particularly in Nottingham, yeah, we've had quite a few. Yep, the economic burden is crazy to try and treat a measles even though it's a relatively self-limiting condition but it can kill and what's interesting is that you have young adults now coming into hospital who are completely frustrated at the fact that 18 years ago their parents didn't vaccinate them mm. and mm. having to bear the burden of disease now oh. yes absolutely there is no evidence and if there's one if there's one public service message off the back of this podcast as well as drinking moderation as well as drinking <laughs> moderation is the mmr vaccine is perfectly, perfectly safe, safe. Yes. there is no evidence no good evidence to suggest that there's anything or any adverse effects off the back of the mmr vaccine short of having an anaphylactic reaction to an mmr vaccine which is incredibly rare in its own right there are no real long-term consequences that have ever improved apart from not getting measles. Yes. Yeah. So absolutely. it's a good public health service announcement off the back mm. of it. Yeah. Mm. And the understanding that whilst in, in some people measles can be very mild and can be just, quote, a fever, um, it can be absolutely catastrophic and life-threatening. There's, um, been, there's been deaths. There's yep. been deaths in our region off the back of measles. Yeah, it's a nasty disease. Yep, and it doesn't need to be, no. as it stands. Well, it doesn't need, you don't need to have it whatsoever. So talk, <coughs> talk to your doctor if you've got worries, you know, mm. in, engage in understanding mm. and, and we'll help you to... Mm address any concerns you've got absolutely so what's interesting and 
Uh, so when Edward Jenner started to publish his uh, work with his vaccine, um, there was even then opposition to his vaccine, going, how could you do this, etc. Mm. Um, and there was even pamphleteering against him, which surprisingly <laughs> has things such as, um, these facts I maintain can never be disproved, which kind of sums up the kind of, <laughs> exactly. that was written by John Birch, who was the prince, uh, who was the surgeon to the Prince of Wales, uh, who was making a lot of money out of alternative ways, remedies for smallpox. So obviously he had a vendetta, uh, but even then there was pamphleteering against it, but yeah. Vaccinate your kids. Anyway. Vaccinations. Vaccinations. Excellent. Canal. Thank your you very story. Much, no worries. Yeah, no, worries. no, I mean, so for me, this one is, again, you know, I'm, I'm, I talk about drugs, that's what I do, and it's kind of off the back of, um, well, it's off the back of my previous little spiel about anticoagulation that we did a few few weeks ago, which we were talking about warfarin and its serendipitous discovery. But now that I've been thinking about it, is serendipity is all well and good, but actually I probably didn't quite make enough of the drug discovery process and how much hard work goes into synthesizing things, mm. going out and actually searching for compounds that can have beneficial effects on people going forward and not necessarily just lucky discoveries which can happen every so often. So I went away and I looked at a couple of um, a couple of interesting drug discoveries. It's all going to be talking about drug discoveries again. Uh, and again, it comes off the back of some lectures that me and Bella had in university. So I'll throw a question out there. Yeah, yeah, I, I was about <laughs> to say, Jamie. Oh, 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 I thought you were going to keep that one in. <laughs> no. <sighs> Always I'm being, learning. I'm being discriminated. Discrimination. You mocked me about Against your bad grammar, that is fair discrimination. That's horrific grammar canal. It's Bella and I. Anyway, anyway, anyway. <laughs> Back to your lectures. It's really it's easy. easy. You take out the other subject and the sentence should still make sense. I attended, therefore it's Bella and I attended. You wouldn't say me attended. Alright, listen to the story. Bloody hell. <laughs> so, I'm going to throw a couple of, um, a couple of things out there. So this is, uh, this is my question to people of the podcast is three animals, the Brazilian pit viper, very venomous steak, kills people. The pygmy rattlesnake of North America. Sounds cute. And Probably the, is. <laughs> <laughs> and the Gila monster. Of well, North it's got a monster in its face. That's that blackened um, uh, red lizard. Yes. And it's the only venomous lizard in the world. That's the one, yeah, you've got it. So How that, do you know these Well, things? technically the Komodo dragon is also a venomous lizard, but it's... <sighs> It's, it was That's the original debatable. Well, it was the original. How much of that actually because the Komodo dragon has bacteria in its teeth and it bites and it transmits gangrene? So how much of it's that rather than actually a venom? Well, you say so. So I'm guessing all these creatures anyway, have venom that was synthesized. I could debate this point. It was used. <laughs> anything that's secreted out of your own body that you inject in someone else's bloodstream is considered a venom. But anyway, that's besides the point. So I'd ask though the three creatures that I've just given you. Can you link them together in any particular way? They're all reptiles. Okay, fine, they're all reptiles. <laughs> and I knew you were going to say that. You <laughs> in a medicinal way. They, guessing on the on the little intro you just gave, they, they almost have contributed somehow to 
drug discovery or production? Yeah, that was a pretty big question. <laughs> now, but, uh, Sorry, uh, they, they're all green. They're all green. <laughs> they're they're green. not, because the gila monsters are oh, red and black. I just oh, man. Uh, they have claws. <laughs> so you're quite right. <laughs> so you're, you're quite right in that these three creatures have yielded, well, have been the source of very interesting drug discoveries over the years, quite novel drug discoveries. And as much as we get serendipitous drugs where you don't even expect them to deal with what they're dealing with, modern science looks at novel compounds in coming from animals, coming from the sea, coming from natural sources, looks at them, looks at their natural place in... Um, well, their natural place in food chain and in um, their ecosystems and then sees how they can apply them to modern medicine and I think it's very very interesting the way they do it. So start off with the Brazilian pit viper. So the Brazilian pit viper is an, is a venomous snake. Back in the 1800s to late 1900s that's when it was properly identified, categorized, given its Latin name etc. It was slightly different to other venomous snakes in that it was observed that the way it killed its prey was different to the way that other venomous snakes, so your classic venomous snake, the black mamba, the adders, the other venomous snakes killed them. So when they did testing, once this um, snake was identified, what they found was that the way they killed their prey wasn't through cytotoxic damage, like some of the other venoms. It was... So a venom that makes your cells die yeah, and Yeah, cells die, and, hemorrhage, yeah. and you just can't move, and it, it kills you very quickly because of cell da cellular damage. So just, you get apop... Well, what do you call it? You get cell death off the Apoptosis. Back of it. Ap apoptosis, as we say. Now, the Brazilian pit viper actually caused a completely different way of disabling its prey when it was killing people, killing the, um, the animals. And it was causing this profound hypotensive drop in its prey. So particularly it went after marsupials, rats, small mammals as its typical prey. So when it was studied how it was affecting its prey, it was odd, it was not killing them, it was causing this profound hypotensive drop that then allowed them to come in and crush them with its body, which was a very novel mechanism oh. by which this venom was working. What could it be used for? I wonder. <laughs> Indeed. So. What we did was, as snakeologists, <laughs> I love those snakeologists. Um, they, we need a correct term for that. No, herpetologists. Herpetologists? Mm, sure, that's it. Let me Google it. People that study snake venom, that must be a thing. Toxicology. Oh yeah, I suppose it is a toxicologist. My head just went snakeologists. <laughs> well, herpetology. Herpet herpetology. Herpetology, there we are. Being put to shame Always by Dr. Thomas Again, thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> yes, that's it. Yeah, just wiki that. I just got bantered for that previously, but whatever. So, we milked these snakes, we looked at the venom, we looked at the various compounds in the venom, and we found a very interesting compound. I'm not going to tell you the name of it because it's too long and complicated, but effectively that compound gave rise to the first of the ACE inhibitors. Mm -hmm. So it was the first ever compound that was found to have natural action on the stereoisomer state of the ACE enzyme and it 
blocked it and stopped angiotensin 1 going to angiotensin 2 and that's how it's causing these profound hypotensive drops. So it was refined and we created the first ACE inhibitor off the back of the venom of this snake. The name of the first marketed ACE inhibitor I'll throw out there. Captopril. Well done. Captopril. Hard pass for me. <laughs> Captopril, she'd know because it's still used in paediatrics right now because we've got a lot of data for it mm -hmm. in children. So you give it to children, don't you? We do. So Captopril, great drug. Big, big, pro big, big effect in essential hypertension. Big effects on heart failure now that we know. And now we've got evidence for secondary prevention of MI. So it's become a mainstay of mm -hmm. cardiovascular secondary prevention. And this was off the back of the assessment of Brazilian pit viper venom, mm. which is very interesting. And that now we've refined it. Captopril was a good drug, but it was a bit crap because you had to take it twice a day and it had a lot of adverse effects. Its renal effects were more than some of the other newer ACE inhibitors. So we refined it to enalapril, to ram, to lisinopril, to ramapril, to some of the newer ACE inhibitors. Mm. And now we've got very, very good, clean ACE inhibitors off the back of it. So massive, massive thing there. So now a massive part of our Treatment of high blood pressure. High blood pressure. First line for essential hypertension. Thanks, snakes. Like the snakes. So we'll go to another snake, the pygmy rattlesnake. <laughs> My god, you brought a snake in here! That's, that's thank you in parcel. <laughs> <laughs> didn't, didn't tell you I was a parcel mouth, did I? So we have another snake. And again, this was again at roughly the same time, so the early 1900s, going towards the mid to late 1900s, where people were very interested in studying these snake venoms. And I'm stretching one. Yeah, no, I wasn't doing it. So the pygmy rattlesnake again was a, a snake that was killing prey in a slightly different way than the traditionally known venoms at that point. So in this way, it was causing other small marsupials and other small mammals to die of catastrophic hemorrhage mm. at this point. So they were getting bit, they were tied up by the, by the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, you, what you can't see listeners is the twitch in Jamie's eye. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. I could correct him, you know, just saying, but... Uh, but not my grammar. Just the politeness of it. <laughs> So they were getting bitten. This snake was getting bitten. No, the snake was the biting. The snake was biting. The prey was getting bitten. <sighs> the prey was getting bitten <laughs> by the me rattlesnake, then being coiled up by this snake, and then after about five to ten minutes, there was observed catastrophic hemorrhage of the prey, and that's how that was the cause of death of these mammals. So again, just bleeding out, just bleeding out, just massive internal hemorrhage. So what they did was they actually, it was all animal experimentation. Unfortunately, that was the way it was back then, but they were exposing these small mammals to that venom, then looking at the effects on the homeostasis of that small mammal. And they were finding there was just catastrophic hemorrhage. Hmm. So again, as they did very similarly with the Brazilian pit viper, they looked at the compounds that were being released, being released in, the, in venom. the venom and looked at various mechanisms that were known to affect anticoagulation in humans. So they found that it didn't actually have any effects on anticoagulation. So interestingly, this was after the story that we talked about Warfarin, about mm -hmm. the red clover and the um, fungal 
pathogens that were going in there and causing your coumarol production. This was well after that, so we had a good understanding of platelet and fibrinogen and all that sort of structures there. And what they found was this venom, or isolated compounds from the venom, had effects on platelets, on the glycoprotein inhib inhibition of platelets. Mm. So what it was Stuff doing, that makes your clots. Stick together, mm. exactly. So in this case, not in the coagulation cascade, but on the platelet aggregation. So what they were finding was this venom was stopping from platelets sticking together. It just stopped it, and they found that it was on this glycoprotein inhibitor. So eventually, um, they thought that they could market this venom once they'd isolated it as a very potent antiplatelet agent. And that's exactly what they did. So they refined it and refined it and refined it, and they came up. They could never make it an orally active antiplatelet, like aspirin and clopidogrel, etc. But they found that if you put this directly into the blood, which is incidentally the difference between a venom and a poison, sometimes you people get that confused. So a venom, by definition, is injected. <laughs> Whereas a poison is ingested. ingested. Yes. So difference between a venom and a poison. So you could use this as a poisonous plants, venomous snakes. That's the one. That's the one. Unless Not you've got like poisonous snakes. If a snake is poisonous, it means it hurts you when you eat it. <laughs> Thank you. Please don't eat snakes. Correct. But you could have like a Venus flytrap or some weird thing that would bite you that could be a venomous plant. Mm. But they don't do it like that. Yeah, unless you're a fly. So by definition, would you call like a stingy nettle a venomous plant? Mm. Because that's parenterally delivering it into you. Good question. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's, let's, let's move on from that. Whilst Jamie ponders that. <laughs> so eventually, as I say, this um, pygmy rattlesnake venom was refined and refined and refined to make a very potent intravenous antiplatelet. And the first one was called um, eptifibotide, which is still used today as an intravenous antiplatelet hmm. for unstable MI, particularly in the picture of a percutaneous coronary intervention. So typically, if you're putting someone on the table for PCI, you'll use a drug like eptifibotide alongside your heparin, alongside your um, aspirin or your other antiplatelet as well going to prevent your, stabilise your plaque in your coronary artery mm. to be able to get at it. We don't use the eptifepatide as much anymore. Now, terofibam, um, I think, is more preferred, but it's a very similar structure to it. Huh. So it became a really important drug in dealing with MIs, acute MIs. And that all came off the back of the pygmy rattlesnake. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. mm. So another animal-derived source. And then the most recent version of all of this comes to the Gila monster. I just love the name. Sounds like a Pokemon. No, because venom. No, because stinging nettles don't use venom. They stick histamine into you, so it's actually an irritant. It's not a venom. Venom is a secretion containing toxins produced by an animal. Thank you, Wikipedia. Thank you, Wikipedia, once again. <laughs> by an animal. Yeah. And I'm now bringing up a photo of a Gila monster to show people. This is what a Gila monster looks it's like. It's very yellow and black. Okay. It is very yellow and black. That's red. Let's not get started on that dress thing. That's red. Yes. Mm, no. That's red. <laughs> I thought it was yellow. It but looks very yellow orange. Continue. You're, you're looking at you're, you're looking at it through the glass of your wine. <laughs> 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 it's your problem. 
tell us about this monster. So the Gila monster, as we say, it's actually a very harmless lizard. So it's a very big lizard. And it is a venomous lizard in its own right, but it's incredibly docile. It never hurts anybody, pretty much. I think it even eats plants and things like that, so it doesn't even necessarily Hmm. have to kill animals. There was a quote somewhere from the first person that named it that said, like, if you get bitten by a Gila monster, you're a moron. (laughs) 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 You would have to actively go out and try and get bitten to be bitten by a Gila monster. Put your finger in its mouth and tickle it. (laughs) However, the great ignorance of humanity meant that people did get bitten by Gila (laughs) monsters for whatever reason. Excellent. Well done, people. And so the syndrome that was associated with Gila monster bites was profound hypoglycemia. Oh, I so see where this is going. Blood mm. sugar drop. You had a massive Massively. drop in in um, in blood sugar when you were bitten by Did these not things. Feel good. Which was interesting. Even though there was effectively no other syndrome, it was just irritation around the site, possible cellulitis because of what you got in the spit. But the systemic features you got was this drop in. BM. So obviously, and this was now we're talking about the 1980s to 1990s when this was first noticed, type 2 diabetes was a big problem at this point. So it was thought, could this be used as a treatment for type 2 diabetes? Mm. So the saliva of the Gila monster ultimately was found to have very strange enzymatic peptides. that eventually had a, a compound that we call glucagon-like peptide receptor antagonists, which work by, well, effectively in reducing insulin resistance and improving symptoms of type 2 diabetes by dropping hmm. glucose levels. So originally it was coined as a non-insulin insulin, a long-acting insulin because it's an injectable preparation. It's not orally active because it's a peptide. So it's a massively long chemical structure that could never be broken down if you took it orally. But injected IM subcar IV, you get this drop or in resistance of um, insulin, well, in, of insulin secretion hmm. and improvement against resistance of insulin that's been a big factor in helping type 2 diabetes if you're not doing well on the oral hypoglycemics. So things like metformin, glycoside, if you're not doing well on it, this is something we add in now, and it's hmm. seeing more and more and more people on it as we stand. It's also got a very important place in obesity. So actually it's been proven to cause you to lose weight. So it's a really big option in type 2 diabetics who are obese, who need to lose weight off the back of it. So who have cardiovascular morbidity off the back of their type 2 diabetes hmm. because they're morbidly obese. So again, an animal that's caused the synthesis of a massively important compound that we're now using more and more and more and more in type 2 diabetes. So examples would be exenatide, liraglutide, a few other ones which are all once weekly or once daily hmm. injectables for type 2 diabetes. Amazing. As it stands. And that's just three of them. There's more and more and more of them. So I mean, we could talk about talk about insulin which is secretion of pig pancreatic enzyme that was the original synthesis of insulin Mm -hmm. we could talk about heparin which was derived from canine livers that's why it's got the name heparin hep so hep meaning liver heparin dog liver Mm -hmm. that's where it came from 
Very interesting. Interestingly, there was, um, I think there was, there's a story about some random, well, slightly serendipity, but when they were testing the dog liver heparin enzyme, there was another lab that was looking at shellfish. The shellfish found to have an antagonistic effect against the dog liver enzymes. Thus, that's how they discovered protamine came from shellfish. Mm. Loads which and loads. Which we used to reverse heparin. Which we, exactly. Very interesting. Ah, cheers to you, reptiles. So many reptiles, particularly and the reptiles as well. Yeah. There also is the state reptile of Utah. Oh. As well, I did not know. I didn't even know it was an, I didn't know it was an American. Mm. <laughs> I didn't know states had mascots. Apparently they do. <laughs> in the form of reptile. reptile. Cheers. 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 Cheers to the reptiles. Love those reptiles. Reptiles are our friends. <laughs> right then, guys. So, what do we think of this Pinot Noir? We need to give it some quacks. Mm. Yeah, I'm not going to start because I started last time. So, Kimberly, what do you think? I've enjoyed this one. It's a little bit, um, it feels a little bit lighter than the one that we had on the last episode. Has certainly gone down very easily. I am. Oh, I feel like I'm always hedging my bets, so I'm, I'm gonna <laughs> change it. I, I'm just gonna go straight there for four quacks. Four. Strong. Mm. You know what, Kim? I was thinking the exact same. Ah. It's going down really well. Very fruity, very easy drinking. Four as well from me. Mm. Can I just... She said, no, 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 it's yours, oh. Dr. Mm. I'm going to give it... Three and a half quacks. Three and a half. I think it's because I brutalised his wine. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I think he, I think he likes it. <laughs> so for me, I really, well, I mean, it's my wine. I, I, I really do like this wine. I think it's very. Easy had you to had this wine it. before? No, I've never had it before. Honestly, it's only just for. Um, I've been told good things about it, but I think it's a lovely Pinot Noir. I think it's got. It's, it's just perfect for the booze in it. You don't taste the booze in it. I'd be willing to give it. A four point five. <gasps> wow. wow! I think it's a really lovely wine. This might be our highest scoring wine. So yet. on the Vivino app, it gets three point eight stars. Um, after um, gosh, five hundred sixty-seven ratings, mm-hmm. and we have given it four quacks out of five. Nice round number. New winner. A new winner. As it stands. <laughs> wow! Cheers Eight. to that one. Cheers, Cheers So, that was uh, the story of Onesimus and some of the uh, beginnings of uh, inoculation and vaccination. And we've learned about three funky reptiles and their venom. Mm -hmm. And we've reviewed a very nice one. Excellent. So, thank you very much, Canal. Thank you, Dr. Thomas. Thank you, Bella. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. (laughs)